It's time for Tycoons of Small Biz, spotlighting the true backbone of the American economy, the true tycoons of business in America, the owners, founders, and CEOs of small businesses. The show's hosts, Austin Peterson and Landon Mance, are registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker-dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's Tycoons. Good afternoon, Tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you live from Scottsdale, Arizona, joined by my co-host, as always, Landon Mance, live from Las Vegas, Nevada, otherwise known as the man who should never be required to wear a mask. Everybody wants to see that face all day, every day. If this is the first time that you have joined us on Tycoons of Small Biz, let me just give you a little bit of background on what we do here on the show. This show is put together for small business owners by small business owners. And the idea of this show is to prop up small business owners and let them have an opportunity to have a platform to tell their story, to let the world know exactly why they truly are the backbone of the American economy. And to that end, today we are excited to have Gary Braun with Pivotal Advisors with us today on the show. Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, we're excited to have you. And, uh, you know, just before we, we uh, went live, we were talking about the fact that you're from the land of 10,000 lakes and you don't fish. <laughs> uh, I, I think you may be surprising. Yeah, I, uh, I think you may be surprising our listeners a little bit. Yeah, I, I'm the outcast. When everybody gets together and they talk about what they caught and where they fished and everything else, I, I got nothing. <laughs> well, that's okay. You've got a short golf season, so you got to get all that time into to, uh, playing golf, right? That's absolutely right. I can't get enough of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say something. You know, it's it's interesting that. Uh, you know, Gary is actually the, uh, you know, the, the driving force behind this new campaign, trying to get everyone, you know, to come out there and fish so that the golf courses can remain somewhat empty. You know, it's a really, really strategic move on his part. You shouldn't be saying that out loud. You're, you're going to foil my plan here. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, Gary, before we jump into the business side of things, and we know you've got a lot of uh, insight to add there. We typically start by asking our guests to tell a little bit about themselves personally. So we know a little bit about your family, but, you know, tell us about your family. Tell us about kind of how you grew up and, and how you got to where you are, if you don't mind. Sure, sure. Um, been married 29 years to my lovely wife, Becky. We've got a couple of kids. My oldest was a brilliant kid, went through. I had a plan for her. She's going to go to college. She's going to get her degree. She's going to do all that. She did one year of college, was rocking it and said, I want to serve. So she dropped out of college and now she's in the Marines and she's stationed out in California and doing a great job. And then I've got a daughter in um, just finishing her sophomore year in college. She's doing great. I don't know. I grew up a typical suburban kid, you know, mom and dad, dad worked as a printer for years and years. Mom uh, basically was home with us four kids and raised us and did little retail jobs here and there. But uh, like any other family in the burbs, I guess you might say. And uh, you know, later in life, we'll get to it. But then I joined my brother back up in, in our careers. And now we have a company of our own. Yeah, that's awesome. So is your oldest at Camp Pendleton then? 
Yep, yep, that's right. Okay. That's where my younger brother served uh, when he was in the Marines. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't serve, but I'll tell you, I had an experience on Camp Pendleton that I'll never forget. I was uh, competing in the Oceanside Half Ironman, and the bike ride goes through Camp Pendleton. And so you, you ride right onto the base and, you know, of course they've got training exercises going on and, you know, people everywhere. Cause it's still an active Marine base, right? I was having some issues with my lower back. And so I got off my bike and I'm laying on the ground trying to stretch my legs or excuse me, stretch my back and my legs are going back and forth, you know, like this, trying to just loosen things up. And all of a sudden I look up and there's an 18 year old Marine with a fully automatic weapon around his shoulder, <laughs> just staring at me saying, are you okay, sir? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine actually. But man, that's just, you know, you kind of close your eyes, you know, you're stretching and all of a sudden you got a, a 18 year old with a fully automatic weapon standing above you. And it's a little, a little surreal. Yeah. That, that's a very impressive place. Um, my my daughter drove me through there and you saw, you know, the big helicopters and I mean, all the big equipment and everything. That place is huge. You can drive a half hour and not be from one end to the other. It's just amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the bike ride for that Ironman is 56 miles and all but about two miles of it is on the Marine base. Wow. Yeah. So it, it's a little crazy. So. Hats off to you for your daughter doing that. You know, the, the military is something that's very near and dear to Landon and I's hearts, period. But, uh, you know, one of the unique things about our practice is our practice coordinator is actually a retired officer and West Point graduate. And she runs our practice for us. So, you know, I'm actually surprised that Landon has, you know, that collar that doesn't look completely ironed today with her in the office. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into the business side of things. So tell us a little bit about Pivotal Advisors and, and really what the biggest problems that you guys help solve for small businesses. Yeah, we're, we're a sales consulting company and we deal with lots of small to mid-sized companies that get to a point in their growth where it kind of plateaus. So that can be after a year or five years or 10 years. We had one company that is a fourth generation and they grew to a certain point and then they just plateaued and couldn't figure out how to grow again. And it's, it's funny that a lot of these companies, they get to their growth because they got a really good core group of people with good products and services in the right market. And all of those people know how to do everything. And they wear lots of hats and everything's in their head and they do everything. You know, they might go market it and sell something and put it in the box and ship it out and do customer service and they do everything. And that works for a really long time, but at some point, that's not a super scalable solution. And that's really where Pivotal Advisors comes in on the sales front. So we help them figure out where's growth going to come from? How do we get the right team in place? Um, how do we hire the right people, onboard them? How do we get repeatable process so we're not just relying on that core group of people? Or in a lot of cases, you go to a lot of these small businesses and you got one or two salespeople that carry the big load for everybody and the rest of the team kind of flails. So how do we get a repeatable process where everybody's successful? How do we measure the right things? How do we manage the right people? How do we get the right comp plans in place to drive them? And that's really us is creating the sales operating system, if you will, that allow these companies to get to the next level. 
Gotcha. So it, it's not necessarily focused on sales skills, for example, but it's about the organization, the sales organization within the organization to kind of help them scale that organization. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's really well said. There, there's tons of sales training companies out there. And I've been through a lot of the trainings. And I think there's really good trainings. And, and actually, that's one of the things that a lot of owners try to do. And they can't figure out how to get to that next level is they go to sales training. And they invest a bunch of money in it. And then they don't enforce it and don't coach to it. And then, you know, 30, 60 days later, but it's back to their old habits. So we're not about that. There is good training. I like a lot of the training that's out there. Our focus is on the systems process, the foundational pieces that really make a healthy sales organization. And the thing that that really drives all of those things I was just talking about is the sales leader. And that sales leader sits in the middle and nine times out of 10, that sales leader was a really good salesperson who got promoted. Nobody teaches them how to hire or coach or have a difficult conversation or develop a comp plan or set strategy. That's where we come in. Uh, we we help those people really become effective leaders and get the things in place that can help them scale. Yeah, I think you made an important point there, you know, that most of the time, the best salesperson becomes the sales manager or the sales VP at some point. And quite honestly, I mean, I've been in my career for 20 years and I was in sa- in my current career for 20 years and in my and in sales before that. And so yeah. I've seen it really my, my whole life, but the reality is most really good salespeople don't make really good sales managers or really good sales VPs. Sometimes the middle of the road salesperson that knows how to sell, but has other skills and talents and abilities becomes the better sales manager or sales VP. It's a great point. And I even look at some of the skills are opposed to each other. I mean, if I look at a good salesperson, they know how to go find clients, how to get the right contacts in there, how to generate interest and get in the door, um, how to get commitments, how to negotiate, how to do all the rest of that. Those aren't the same skills you need to be a sales leader. Mm -hmm. Oh, and by the way, they like all the recognition. They like the win and everything else. I look at a sales leader. They have to be good at holding other people accountable. They have to be a good coach. They have to develop systems. They have to be comfortable not being in the spotlight and getting rewarded by having their people be in the spotlight. So it's a completely different job. But again, nine out of 10 sales leaders were good salespeople. And they said, Austin, you were successful. Or Landon, you were successful. You're now in charge. And then they give them no support or don't teach them how to do the job. It's amazing. When we started our company in 2008, uh, my brother, who was my partner, we went to, we'll date ourselves a little bit, a Barnes and Noble, and we went to the, the book racks and we said, how many books are there on sales? Racks and racks and racks about, you know, how do you sell and everything? How many books are there on leadership? Just general leadership, racks and racks and racks. How many books are there on sales leadership? Because there's a lot of uniqueness to being a sales leader. Two, we found two books out there out of all of these things. There's just not many resources for sales leaders to learn how to be really good sales leaders. But but the funny thing, guys, if I ask any sales leader, go out there and I challenge you to ask any sales leader if they're a good sales leader. I think 99.9% of them will go, I am awesome. I'm a great coach. I'm good at everything. 
And then when we work with these guys, we show them, well, here's what really good looks like. Here's how you set up your management system. Here's how you hire. Here's how you onboard. Here's what a good sales process looks like. And they look at all that and go, yeah, I'm not doing any of that. But there's no standard. You know, they have nothing to compare themselves to. Yeah. Gary, are you hinting at something here? Is there a, is there a book on the horizon? What's going on there? There is. There is, actually. But but it's one of these books that's been in the process for like two to three years. And, and we said we we're going to make this book called uh, Pivotal Moments, 33 Stick, Sticky Situations That Define a Leader, a Sales Leader. And it's all about all those weird things that you have to encounter when you're a sales leader and how do you deal with them. And, and we've been on chapter 26 for about a year and a half now. So we're, we got busy and we're, we're still trying to finish it, but we'll get there. All right. Are we, are we talking 20, 20, chapter 26 out of 26 or 26 out of 30 or, or where, where out of 33, we had 33 scoped out. And for some reason we're having a hard time getting those last seven done. Okay. All right. Well, we, uh, we will keep our eyes and ears uh, peeled because we're once, once the book is done, we'll tell you what, we'll, we'll make a little deal with you right here on the air in a, in a, in an effort to uh, help you get that book done, you know, maybe by the end of this calendar year, as soon as you have the book done and you're ready to start promoting it, we'll have you back on and you can tell us all about it. Oh, I'll take you up on that. That's awesome. Okay. Sounds good. Well, Gary, uh, earlier you alluded to um, small businesses getting to a point, uh, basically just hitting a ceiling, right? Where they're just yep. they're just plateaued. And Austin and I see that uh, every day in our practice because we are, you know, uh, primarily focused on serving private business owners. So before we talk about how you guys help them to break through those those ceilings, talk to us for a couple minutes about why they get stuck. So why do they plateau? Why do they stop growing? What, what, what typically causes that? Yeah, there's, there's a few things. Um, you know, we, we kind of break it down into six different areas, but we, we start with, I'll give you some of the more common ones. Uh, we go in there and we look at their strategy and we ask a lot of these guys, you know, where's growth going to come from? You know, and it's so funny. I, I talked to a lot of CEOs and their plan says, I'm going to grow 15% per year over the next five years. And if you do the math, that that doubles them. And I go, that's awesome. Good plan. Got your goals set up. Perfect. Where's that growth going to come from? I got silence coming back. Well, we're going to work hard. It's like, okay, but there's a bunch of different ways to grow. You know, you can go after new markets. You can come up with new products. You can expand existing customers. You can get new customers. There's a bunch of ways to grow. What are you going to do? Yeah, those things. Like, okay, <laughs> maybe we should be a little tighter on that. But, you know, so number one is we really don't have a well-defined growth strategy. Number two is they're not differentiated. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to owners, the CEOs, the salespeople, and I said, why buy from you versus your competition? And I get back things like, well, we have awesome customer service. I'm like, I'm still waiting for the, the company out there that says our customer service is just in. It's okay. Everybody says they have awesome customer service. That's not differentiating you. Yeah, but ours really is good. Well, okay. But the, in the customer's eyes, they don't know any difference. So that's not a good differentiate. So they try to compete. And if that's what they're using, they end up competing on price and it kills them. You know, now we got, got shrinking margins. Small businesses are notorious for hiring poorly. 
especially salespeople. Salespeople are awesome interviewers. Sometimes we say the joke is the best sale they ever made was getting the job in the first place, and then they can't do anything after that. Mm-hmm. So it, it's uh, they look for, give me a person from my industry who's got a good track record. They're good at relationships. You know, they're people, people. Um, they ask great questions. They interviewed well. Uh, they have drive. They're ethical, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's great. If you don't have those things, you shouldn't be in sales in the first place. So if you look for anything else, we'll know that's it. If I got that person, I'm rocking. The skills to go hunt and find new prospects and get them in the door are way different than what I'll call farming or account management, where it's working with them and growing them. Those are different skill sets. So which of those do you need? Oh, I think I need more hunter. Okay, so that's a different skill set. Are they selling to big companies where there's five decision makers on the other side and I got to get to all of them and figure out what they all need and get them aligned and then present my solution? Or am I selling to a person? Oh, because those are way different skill sets. If you've ever sold enterprise versus small business, that's way different. Okay, which one of those do you... Are you the premium where you are the high-priced person on the block and you got to justify your price? Because that's way different than the discount person. And, you know, and I can go on and on and on. And they don't consider any of that. They just hire people and they get them there. They don't like them. They turn them over. And sales leaders are even worse. They bring in a sales leader because they were a good salesperson. You know what? The, guys, you know what the average tenure of a sales leader is today? They do this study about every year. Three years. And I just said months. pretty short. 20 months. 20 months. All right. Tw- I'm sorry. Yeah, 20 months. Just under two years. We, we get them in there. We hire poorly. We get them in there. We don't give them any support. We get frustrated. We fire them and we get a new one. Or we promote our next guy. So, so they struggle with strategy. They struggle with people. We don't have repeatable process. I mentioned that before. You know, one or two people got it figured out, but it's all in their head and nobody else knows what they do. Um, where they really struggle is that, I'll call it a performance discussion. Um, when the sales leader sits down with the salesperson and they have a conversation, it usually looks like this. Hey, Landon, what's going on with ABC Company? Oh, is that going to come in this month? Okay. You might want to give them a call. And what about XYZ? And what about the... And it's a pipeline review. And you might deal strategize and whatnot. But there's zero value in that for the salesperson. And a good performance discussion looks like this and go, hey, Landon, you know, your plan says, which assumes they have a plan that you're supposed to get, you know, five new opportunities a month. You've averaged three for the last two months in a row. So if we stay on this pace, we're not going to hit our goal. So Landon, what do you think we need to do differently? And we talk and we come up with new ideas and we come up with new plans and we make adjustments. Sales leaders are just not trained to do that. It's a deal review. It's a forecasting. It's a deal strategy. And we don't have discussed performance discussions and really try to improve the sales people. And that, that's, that's a crisis, I would call it, in the sales management field. And, and you know, that, that's, a, that's a big fall down. So it's a lot of accountability and coaching and development and the sales leader sitting in the middle trying to figure out how to do that. Well, and I, I think it's just a cycle, right? It just goes round and round because the salesperson becomes the sales leader. And the only way that they interacted with their sales leader in the past was exactly the way that you just described it. 
Let's take a yep. look at your pipeline. Do, is there anything you need for me to help you close that? Let's make a phone call. You know, are we going to close that by the end of the month? It, it literally is just this cycle of that's the only thing I've ever seen. So that's how it's done. Yeah. And, and to my earlier point, and they think that that's right. And they think they're good at that. And they probably are because nobody's ever told them the better way to do that. And and here's what bothers me a lot of times too is, gee, Landon, that, that uh, deal stuck in the pipeline. Let's go out together. And then the sales leader goes and takes over. And they completely run that call. They run the deal. They do everything, which is not scalable. You can't have your sales leader get out to all of the deals. And by the way, the salesperson doesn't learn anything. They're just watching. You know, I we talked before we got on the air, we were talking about golf. I never got better at golf by watching the pros swing on the range. <laughs> no, I got to do it. And he's got to go, dummy, keep lifting your elbow up. Keep that in. You know, you got to watch them do it, observe, provide feedback, coach, make them good. You don't do it for them. Yeah. So I, I'll tell you what, I mean, there's, I'm sure you've heard this as a joke. You know, you, you guys are essentially consultants, right? Mm-hmm. So these hired guns that come in and tell a company what's wrong with their company and then, you know, the joke is you leave a binder of this is what you need to do to fix it, right? And then you're out the door and you got your check and, you, you know, you moved on. So give us an idea of what you guys do differently than most consultants or what it is that you're doing while you're in their office to help their sales leaders become better at their job. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and it's funny because that's a perception that we have to battle all the time. I had one of my customers say, most consultants... We'll take your watch from you and they'll spend, you know, a day with it and they'll come back and they'll tell you what time it is. It's like, okay, that, that's useless. <laughs> um, when we get in there, we, we, it, it's, we were fortunate early in our company to get involved with a, we were actually contractors for a company that was all about behavioral science. And we learned a lot about how do you shape human behavior? Just because I told you to do something, I trained you to do something doesn't mean you're going to go do it. How do you shape behavior? So when we go in there, we start by assessing what's in place today, strategy, people, process, all that good stuff. And we come back and we say, if it's working, if it's doing a good job, I ain't going to change it. Let's standardize on that. Let's get everybody doing it, not just a few of them. So we, we set that in one bucket. Then there's this bucket of stuff where, you know what, you're not awesome at it, but it's not killing you. And then we find this third bucket of stuff that says, if we really make a change here, whether it's a strategy or approach or whatever, and we get people executing on this, we can make a big difference. And then we stay with them for, you know, average engagements, probably nine to 12 months. Well, we not only document it, implement it, but then we work with the sales leader to make sure that people are actually executing on it. We can measure it. We're getting results and then we go to the next item on our list and we keep doing the same thing, but we're in there. We got some clients that have been with us since our first year we started in 2008 because they keep coming up with new things or new markets to go after and we just keep working with them. So it's not a, I don't like the binder guys. I don't, you know, the big binder on the shelf. It's we're there to shape behaviors and drive adoption. Yeah. So you guys are literally rolling up your sleeves with them and and teaching them what needs to be fixed and making sure that it's being done correctly and coaching them along the way to where they can fly on their own, so to speak. Yeah. And, and a, a couple different ways. One is sometimes the CEO is in charge and they're running the sales team. 
by the way, most of them don't want to do it. And they don't have a motivation to do that. And they don't have the time to do it. And they didn't come up through sales in the first place. So they're not even good at it. And they know that. So in some cases, we actually put our person in there and we run their team. We're an outsourced VP of sales, if you will. And we get all that stuff in place that I've been talking about. And then our last act in there is really to hire their permanent sales leader and transition them in so they can run the system that we built. Um, more often is they have a sales leader that I've been describing along and we just teach them best practices. We implement through them. So it's either the, we give you the fish or we teach you to fish. Gotcha. So speaking of CEOs that sometimes aren't great sales leaders or salespeople themselves, in your experience, how do CEOs typically try to fix their growth issues inside of the organization? Yeah, I mentioned a couple of, what well, one is send them to sales training. That'll fix everything. And, and again, I'm not bashing sales training. I've been through, you know, Miller Hyman and Sandler and spin selling and value selling and they all fill in the sellings. There's really good training out there and I really like, like it. But then when we get it back and we don't, a uh, big problem is the sales leader is learning the training alongside of their people. And now they're supposed to be the ones that are be the expert and reinforce it. They're learning at the same time. So that, that fails and there's nobody else there to reinforce it. So sales training is probably the biggest thing. And even when a CEO has a problem, the first thing they do is they go and they Google sales training. Who's a good sales trainer? It's, it's rarely the answer. It can provide you a spark, but unless we reinforce it, it doesn't really do the job. Uh, the next one is 20 months, they fire the sales leader and they get a new sales leader in there because that guy wasn't the right one. And then we promote our next guy and we keep repeating that cycle. And then the third one I see all the time is uh, I mess with their money. I have to, quote, motivate these people to uh, do more. So I start messing with their money. I lower their base. I raise their, their commission and that's going to get them going. Really what you do, if they don't know how to do it very well, all you're doing is making them mad and then they quit. And, you know, I keep messing. I had one company, they changed their comp plan seven times in two years. Now, throw in there that it's a six-month sales cycle. And just when I'm finally understanding what the comp plan does and how to maximize, I just got changed again. That's rarely the answer. Oh, and then the fourth one is, we get involved a lot ourselves as CEOs and we try to get down to the, you know, the minute detail in every deal. It's not, not a scalable solution. Yeah. Yeah. Just like a sales leader can't be involved in every deal, neither can the CEO or <laughs> right. yeah. Business is just not going to continue to grow. Gary, let me, let me jump in real quick. I, I, I got to ask a question because I, I, I keep meaning to ask it and then it, it slipped in my mind. So I, I think it's kind of a good segue into what we probably would have been naturally talking about next, which is kind of like, you know, how you guys are different, which you kind of described to us. But what, what I've heard you say a couple of times is, is this mentality of a, a hunter versus a farmer. So um, talk to us first about like, wh what does that, what does that mean and what, what is the difference between a hunter and a farmer? And then incorporate that into kind of, uh, you know, more of, of, of what, what you guys do, which clearly is different than a typical sales training organization. Yeah, yeah it's a good question. So um, I think of as a hunter is somebody who's going to get new business. That's their job is to go get new business. 
Um, they have to go identify prospects. Uh, maybe they get leads, but maybe they have to go identify prospects. They have to learn about that company. They have to figure out who are the decision makers in there. How do I even get the decision makers to talk to me? Because in today's world, nobody answers the phone or returns a voicemail or returns an email anymore. So how do I grab their attention? How do I become relevant, generate interest, do what I'll call deep discovery, understanding their company, the issues they may have, make them think about things they haven't thought of already, plant ideas in there, generate the need, um, and then propose solutions and, and close those. And I bring them on. I am a hunter. I'm hunting new logos, new clients all the time. And that is a specific skill set. And even within there, it's there, there's some might not call them hunters, but there's hunters who are really good at following up on leads that gen, marketing has generated for them. And there's other ones that are really good at generating their own. Um, <laughs> a little side story here. I was interviewing on behalf of one of our clients. I was interviewing uh, salespeople. They wanted a hunter. This is what they wanted. Uh, they said, we are too concentrated on our current business. We need new logos. We need to get a hunch to go find new stuff. And they looked at his resume, kind of like I said before, his resume looked awesome. He led his company in new sales every year. He led his company in new revenue, new accounts, went to President's Club, everything else. And they said, Gary, can you interview him on our behalf? I said, no problem. And here, here I'm a long way to get to your, your answer. We set up our interview around specific skills that they needed. So we helped them in the hiring process and we looked for those particular hunter skills. So it wasn't tell me about your background and you know, tell me about a time where yada, yada, yada. It, it, we got really specific on the skills we were looking for. And I looked at his resume and said, Bud, you, you look awesome. You, you've had a really successful career here and it, and it looks like you're really good at chasing new business. Oh, I'm awesome at it. I said, so... Tell me, how do you even decide who you're going to go chase? He just paused, dead silence for a second. He goes, well, I assume there's leads. <laughs> I know. No, there's, there's no leads. We don't really have a, much of a marketing department here. So what would you do? He goes, well, I'm really well connected. I would use LinkedIn. I go, awesome tool. How would you use LinkedIn? Well, I would go to all the people I'm connected to, huge network, and then I would go to all the people they're connected to. Like, yeah, we call that the friends and family network. That kind of runs out after about 60 or 90 days. So then what would you do? I got crickets back. I got nothing. So, you know, the long example for you, but it's, we help them to find what do we need? Hunter or farmer, I didn't answer that. Farmer is I'm in an account and I manage that account day to day. And I'm always looking for expansion opportunities. I'm always looking for how do I get more out of this account? How do I go to another division, another department, add on additional services? That's a good farmer. Different skills. So I figure out which skill our, our company does and figure out what are the three, four, five essential skills we need and design our interview process around that and then help them hire for those specific things. Kind of like I was just modeling with that supposed hunter that I was talking about. And then even when we get them on board, it's not like we got the right guy or gal. We need to get them up to speed quickly. So companies are usually the one to two week, tell you everything you need to know about our company, our products, our services, our differentiation, our competition, our industry, our CRMs. I mean, they just drink from the fire hose. People don't retain it. So, you know, we help them with a good program to 
not only teach them these things, but validate that they got it and can apply it and they can get up to speed quickly. So that's just an example of, you know, one small part of what we would do. Love it. Love it. All right. Let me ask one follow-up question here, Austin, real quick. Um, so Gary, um, I, I want to get some, some insight here from you. I think in, in a lot of the clients, business owner clients that Austin and I serve in the last 12 to 15 months, there's been two kinds of, of owners, right? There's been the owner that is uh, almost frozen by fear because their revenues are down 25, 50, 75, 90% in some cases. Uh, and they're just kind of frozen in fear, hoping that things will bounce back. Then the second owner is the one that is, you know, uh, evaluating the business, restructuring, maybe pivoting in a different direction, looking for new opportunities, you know, sees this, you know, what, what's happened in the last, you know, since the pandemic, sees it as an opportunity to make some positive changes in the business or, 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 or whatnot. But I'm curious in, in your experience, how, how have you seen things play out? Are you, you know, have you been busier than you've ever been the last 12 to 15 months? Have a lot of people been holding off, you know, to, to do anything until things kind of take a turn for the better? Or what, what have you seen in, in your experience? Uh, you know, what you just described was exactly what happened around March or April of 2020, you know, when COVID was really kicking in. And we saw two things happen. There was a lot of people who said, oh my gosh, cut all expenses. So, you know, we lost some clients or got reduced revenue from a lot of clients because they're like, oh my gosh, cut, we got to just quit. And the really good ones are the ones that said, okay, let's assess the situation. Where's the opportunity? We might need to cut some, but where can we capitalize? What can we do differently? And they doubled down with us. Um, and then it was a little bit of a hit to us in like April, but we've been building back Q1 of 2021 was our best quarter ever. Uh, and people are really, they got supported a lot by like the PPP money and, and they're, they're out of the woods, you might say. So they're not so concerned about cash flow. And now they're like, how do I take advantage of this? And one of the things that we've been talking about is I don't care if you've been dealing with a company for 20 years and they've been a solid client, their world just got rocked. Their, their, their clients are upside down. Um, their cash flow is different. Uh, their priorities have changed. I talked to one client who said everything that was on our roadmap for like 2022, 2023 is way different. And our priorities have all changed and we're doing different things. Now, if you think about that from a sales standpoint, that's a great opportunity for you to go help them with whatever their new strategy is. So if you've been dealing with somebody for 20 years, treat them like they're brand new. Treat them like you've never talked to them before because everything you knew about them might be different now. The people might even be different because they got furloughed or let go. Their priorities have changed. So go treat them like they're brand new. And this is what the good CEOs did was said, okay, how do we proactively go to these clients and say, how can we help you? How have your priorities changed? What can we do? The ones who were less successful called up and said, How's it going? Anything I can help you with? I'm here if you need something. And they were completely reactive. So, you know, again, assess the situation, figure out where the opportunities are, 
and then create a process and a plan for how you go execute against that. And we've done a ton of that on the back end of 2020 going into 2021. Yeah, I think you hit a really important point there, right? <clears throat> so I used to have a sticky note that it just sat on one of the monitors of my computer and it, it just said simply proactive or reactive, right? right? And there's a difference between being proactive and reaching out to your clients. And you right. just hit it, you know, just calling and saying, hey, just want to check in is very different than, hey, the world's different. I'm sure you're trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. What, how can we help? That's a yeah. huge, huge difference. You know, in, in Landon and I's business, it's it, sometimes it is just picking up the phone and saying, hey, we're aware. You know, we know the market just dropped a, a, a large amount, but we want you to know that we're here. We're aware of what's going on. We want to, you know, see what kind of concerns you have and then reassure you on where we are, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's scary to watch the balance of your account drop, for example, right? Yeah. But this is what your portfolio looks like. This is what we've got going on. We're trying to shoot for a goal that's 10 or 15 or 20 years down the road, or even it's as simple as the market dropped by 30%, your portfolio dropped by eight because yep. we anticipated this. Right. And so they understand the partnership. Right. Now, that's just one small example. I mean, Landon and I are typically working with business owners the same way that you are and and saying, you know, what can we do to help you get through this? And, you know, what's important. But I tell you, I, I had clients that just almost gasped at the fact that I had called them right in the middle of this because they had worked with other advisors two and five years ago that never would have called them. Yeah. Right. And it's the same thing in your business. It's the same thing in any business. The reality is they have to know that you care and that you really are in it with them. Whatever your business is, your clients need to know that you're in it with them. Well, and, and imagine the contrast of, hey, Austin, I'm here for you. I'm thinking about you. Tell me what you need, which is good. You're being thoughtful. You're reaching out versus hey, we've been dealing with a lot of clients. They're all dealing with this, that, or the other problem. Do you have those same challenges? Because I'd love to talk to you about what other people are doing to get over this. Are you interested in that? Yeah. Who the heck's going to say no to that? Because they're all trying to figure out what's going on. And hey, you have some advice that might help me. That's being a super proactive plan. And that's what we were trying to help all of our clients through the pandemic was what are the common challenges that all your clients are having, regardless if they're new or existing? Or whatnot, what are the common challenges? What can you do to help them? How can I take that and be proactive and go to them versus just, hey, how's it going? <laughs> There's a way different approach. Yep. Yeah, agreed. And I guess maybe the last thing that I would mention on that or ask you with you know what your experience was, what, what Landon and I's experience has been is probably in line with what you're going to say. But what we found is that for those clients who understood or those business owners who understood that this is pretty bad, but it's an opportunity that if I was set up correctly and I understand that there's an opportunity here to double down potentially on my marketing and or sales mm -hmm. organization, that I'm going to come out this stronger than, than my competitors will. And they pick up yeah. market share because of it. Is that have you seen that ring true as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, there was uh, one client that we had, they were in the food market. So they, they sold products that got sold in restaurants and in food services and at colleges and whatnot. And that was their primary thing. They also sold in grocery, which was a lesser part of their business. And what happened to restaurants and colleges and food services when the pandemic, I mean, it just went down incredibly, which was a huge hit to them. So they could have said, you know, woe is me and cry and cut expenses like crazy. But we worked with them and said, okay, what about this other segment of your business? Grocery, what's going on there? If you guys remember when the pandemic hit, they couldn't keep stuff on the shelves. So instead of their old pitch, which was, hey, can we work with you and get an end cap at the grocery store? Can we get this much shelf space? They turned around, they went to these grocery stores and they said, hey, we know that places like you are having a hard time keeping our types of products on the shelves. By the way, we're local. We can work with you on just-in-time inventory. We can do this. We can do that. What do you think can we get in? 60 stores immediately. And now grocery became a much bigger part of their business than the other one. That was a good pivot that they made. And that was just from assessing the situation, coming up with a proactive plan and going out and executing on it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we, you've got to be willing to pivot when necessary. I think a lot of businesses pivot too often, right? Mm-hmm. But the pandemic was one of those where it was, okay, this is affecting our business, maybe only in this area. So what are we going to do to make that up? Or what are we going to do to double down on certain things that we're doing so that we're ready to, to gather market share on the way out because our competitors aren't thinking the way that we are. They're not putting their efforts in that they need to. They're not, they're not in a good financial position to be able to put in the efforts that we're putting in. You know, and so it, it's it's not always that simple, but the reality is the business owners who kept a calm level head and thought through it thoughtfully mm-hmm. came out of this okay. Yeah. And I even take it a step further and say with a lot of these people, they know what they want to do. And they think about it and they come up with their plans, but then it really gets down to the execution level. Can my salespeople go execute on whatever strategy I just came up with and whatever pivot I'm going to do? And that's really where we come in a lot is just because you wrote it down, you had a brilliant idea, doesn't mean all the salespeople are going to be proficient at doing that. So we work with them and say, how do we make them understand the problem we're solving? How has our process changed? How do we get them prepped to do that? Mr. and Mrs. Sales Leader, how do we get you out there with your salespeople to make sure they're executing it the way that we've designed it and that we're getting feedback so we can make adjustments if we need it? When we get down to that tactical executional level, that's where a lot of the plans fall apart. And that's really where Pivotal Advisors comes in and really helps them you know, have a sound execution strategy. Gary, what, um, what are the typical businesses that, uh, that you know, hire you? Are, are, are we talking, you know, 10 employees or less? Or are we talking 10 to 100, 100 to 1,000? Give us an idea of the, you know, the clients that typically engage your guys' services. Yeah, most of them are B2B. So we, we do very little in like retail or B2C type of stuff. But um, B2B, five to $10 million in revenue on the lower end, up to probably 150 to 200 millions on the top end. If you get much bigger than that, um, a lot of these companies will have whole departments that think that they do what we do. So 
Some of them are good at it. Some of them not so good, but you know, they have a department and it's uh, hard for them to bring in a third party like us. Uh, much smaller than that, you get, you know, a million dollar company or $2 million company. We get kind of expensive for them and um, they don't have a big enough team. You know, there's a guy or two that goes and sells, so they don't have a big enough team. But again, you get in that five to 10 to a hundred. We have a lot of companies that are 10, 20, $50 million. And again, that goes all the way back to what we started at the, at the top of the hour was those are the ones that grew to a certain point and now they plateaued and they can't figure out how to get to the next level. Right. So don't quote me on this. And Austin, you, well, Gary, one of you two might know what the actual number is, but I know the, the, the percentage of businesses that uh, hit a million dollars of revenue. Uh, I know that it's, it's pretty small. I, I believe it's, you know, quite a bit less than 50%. So, you know, we, we've got a lot of people that listen to the show, Gary, that uh, are, you know, called in that one to 5 million of revenue. So they're probably not quite ready for a company like yours. But is there a couple little, you know, a couple little nuggets that you can kind of share with maybe a business that's in that one to 5 million range that, uh, might not be in a position to work with you guys, but maybe you can just share one or two things that they can do in their little sales division to uh, make what they're doing more efficient and effective. I, I can think of a few things. One, figure out who your ideal client is. There are so many companies that will chase, if it has a pulse, if it can fog a mirror, it's a, it's a prospect. Uh, that's not necessarily a good client for you. It doesn't give you the best chance to win. Now, if you're a brand new company, any any com- any client is a good client. You're trying to generate cash, but at some point, you got to get more defined on who gives us the best chance to win, and, and let's focus our efforts on those clients. That that would probably be one of the first things I would do. Number two, uh, a previous company I was with. When I started there in 97, we were a million-dollar company. When I left there 11 years later, we were a $400 million company. The things that we did at a million dollars were way different than what we did at $10 million or $50 million. And one of the key things that we did was we got really good at, I'll just call it the play, but it is our defined sales process. How do we get in the door? Who do we talk to? What questions do we ask? How do we get commitments? How do we differentiate? How do we demonstrate our solution? And we had it we had it nailed down. We knew if I could take a B player off the street or maybe even a C player off the street, run the play. We know the play works. Chase these clients. Run this play. We know it works. You're going to be successful. And when we were climbing from a million to five to 10 to 50 to 400, that was one of the keys was making sure we got a system that works. It's not in everybody's head. It's not just about hiring the superstar salesperson who's got it figured out because I need to scale that. I need it to be repeatable. And then the other one was invest in your sales leader. They don't know how to do the job. Very few of them have been trained on all of the things that we've been talking about today. Get them help so they know how to hire. They know how to coach. They know how to have a difficult conversation. When I go, Austin, you're at 50% of quota, I, a poor sales leader will go, come on, Austin, get your numbers up. That's not helpful for you. You know that you're at 50% of quota. A good sales leader is going to sit down and go, 
Are we not getting enough at-bats? Who are we targeting? Oh, we're getting enough at-bats, but we can't get them through the funnel. Let's talk about what you're doing there. And we can have a difficult conversation and a coaching conversation. But again, we never teach teach our sales leaders how to do that. So those couple couple quick ones, but uh, th- those are some of the more common ones that come up. So I've got a follow up to that. Uh, if okay. there were one book, right? So a small organization, maybe it's a sales leader and two salespeople, for example. If there's one book that a sales leader should read, what would it be? Uh, we have one that we like a lot called Cracking the Sales Management Code. Um, aligns with a lot of the things that we're talking about today. How do I how, how do I measure things and not just sales, but the things that lead to sales? How do I coach? How do I make sure people have a plan? How do I make sure that there's a repeatable process? There's a lot of good stuff in that book. All right. Cracking the sales management code. Great. Yeah. All right. So now let's move into kind of, a, you know, if you ask Landon and I, our, our ideal client profile, we can tell you what it is. It, it's a business owner that owns a business that does between five and fifty million in revenue, and needs to know what to do with that business to to turn it into actual cash at some point. Right? That's our ideal client. So those business owners that are listening, they've got sales leaders. So tell us how your typical sales leader differs from a top performing sales leader. What are some of the things that you see or that you try to help them implement to turn them into a top performing sales leader? Yeah, we just did a blog on this not too long ago. So I see underperforming sales leaders still act like salespeople. We, we, we affectionately call them super reps. You know, they're not a sales rep anymore, but they're a super rep. They, they try to get their hands in everything. They try to go on the calls. They try to close the deals. They, they put themselves in the middle of everything and they are the center of attention. And They've never really graduated out of being a salesperson. A good leader, I think, is one that is constantly saying, how do I make my team better? Every interaction I have with a salesperson is about not giving them the answer, helping them arrive at the answer. And helping them evaluate what they're doing and making changes on their own. If you came to me and you were struggling with something, I could go, Austin, you should just do this. Or I could say, hmm, sounds like an interesting problem. What have you thought about so far? What are your options? That's a possibility. What about what if you thought about this? How would that be different? And by the end of it, you're going, I think I'm going to do that. And I'm going, that's a really good idea. Now, it would have been much quicker to just give you the answer. But did you learn anything? No. And in fact, I did this. And if I'm perfectly honest, the first time I got thrown into a sales leadership job, I wasn't a very good sales leader. I got promoted. I was the top rep. And I thought, I'm also going to do is help everybody close their deals. This is really fun. I'm in all the deals. This is great. We closed another one. Yay me. And that I burnt myself out and it didn't scale at all. And I wasn't very good. And here was my eye opening when I realized that my sales team was getting worse because they would just tee it up and then bring me in and they weren't learning any of the skills about how to really do the job well. That's a big difference. I mean, when that hit me like a bolt of lightning and I got help um, in the form of my brother, actually, uh, he came in and he started helping me. I brought his firm in and we did sales training once. And in a break, one of my salespeople came up to me with a contract and said, we're negotiating. This is what they want to do. I said, do this, do this, do this, do this. 
and walked away and he came up and he goes, what was that all about? Said, well, she had questions. I gave her answers. What did she learn? I'm like, what do you mean? And he was, he was grilling, which I didn't like because he was my brother in the first place and who wants to listen to their brother. <laughs> but in then I walked away going, well, that was pretty crappy. And, and, I'm, and I'm talking about a better way to do that. And we would talk about this stuff all the time. It was actually the genesis for our company was we would have these discussions on the golf course on Thursday night leagues. And I would start implementing this stuff. And it worked. You know, I had a plan. I had accountability. I had a process. I had a better way of hiring. And it got really good. So years later, he calls up and says, Hey, we always wanted to work together. Yep. I, I just sold off my last company. So if we're ever going to do something, now's the time. I'm like, I'm in. What should we do? And then he's, we kicked around all kinds of ideas. We talked about opening a Nevada Bob's Golf Shop. We talked about writing a software app. But what it really came back to was there is this need in small businesses who don't know how to scale. And there's a need with sales leaders who don't completely grasp how to do their new job well. So we said, let's start a business around that and help these companies make that transition so they can grow again. And now we've done that a little over 300 times. Wow, that's awesome. I think when this is all said and done, your brother's going to listen to this podcast and he's either going to say, it should have been me on the podcast or (laughs) look at what Gary's become because of me. (laughs) <laughs> I, I get a lot of that already. <laughs> He's not shy about reminding me of stuff like that. <laughs> I can imagine. Older brother or younger brother? Four years older. Okay. okay. That makes it even worse, doesn't it, Landon? Right, right. Well, um, Gary, this has been a really great conversation. Really enjoyed it. have no doubt that people took away a bunch of stuff that they can implement into their businesses. In closing, though, a couple things. One, please uh, tell your oldest daughter, thank you very much for her service and commitment to uh, this country that she is greatly appreciated. And your younger daughter finishing, you said her junior year? Sophomore year, yeah. Sophomore year, okay. So what what's her plan? Is she going to come work for dad or is she going to go in a different direction? No, my kids are not following in my footsteps at all. She's she wants to go be a, a high school teacher. Okay. Well, hey, that that sounds like some pretty good experience, you know, leading up to maybe coming and working for dad, you know, three to five years <laughs> down the road. So you never know. So, Gary, um, for people that want to track you down, get in touch with you, connect with you, uh, tell us how do we do that. Websites easiest pivotaladvisors.com. You know what, guys? I would never name my company that again because people mess up pivotal or advisors or both. But pivotal P I V O T A L advisors with an E R S on the end. So pivotaladvisors.com. Uh, we got a bunch of videos and whatnot on YouTube. So if you go out to YouTube and search for pivotal advisors, you're going to find a bunch of stuff out there. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter. Um, you know all the the typical channels, but. Uh, Got a lot of good resources out there for small businesses on, you know, hiring, onboarding, process, accountability, all those types of things. Okay. Excellent. Uh, let me clarify something. I don't know if I heard that wrong. Advisors, is it it's O-R-S or E-R-S? O-R-S. Okay. I think you Today. said E-R-S. So O-R-S. Well, thank you for clarifying that. O-R-S. Okay. Got it. Fantastic. 
Well, Gary, thank you again for coming on. Really enjoyed it. Get that book done so that we can get you back on here and talk to you about it. All right. That sounds like a plan. All right. Thanks a lot, Gary. Thanks, Gary. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance. Austin and Landon are comprehensive financial planning professionals specializing in financial, estate, and succession planning for small business owners. Austin and Landon have offices in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Las Vegas, Nevada, and represent clients in 14 states throughout the country. Join Austin, Landon, and the Featured Tycoons live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. right here on Business Radio X and your favorite podcast platform.